Welcome to Strength for the Journey from First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau. Make no mistake, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior is the best decision of your life. But it comes at a cost. First Pres Senior Pastor Dan Chun explains in this sermon called, Who Do You Say I Am? If we are focused on what is worth dying for, we will know what is worth living for. Mark Twain said, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. To be or not to be faithful, that is the question. When I was in London, I happened to visit the Globe Theater, a replica of the famous theater uh, where many of Shakespeare's plays were performed. And while I was there, Academy Award-winning actor Mark Rylance was rehearsing Othello, one of Shakespeare's most famous plays. You may have seen him in Dunkirk. Shakespeare was a great man. Uh, some say he um, uh, um, was one. Uh, he, he wrote 37 plays and 154 sonnets. And I know there is a um, controversy of who actually wrote all of his plays, but most people seem to agree with those numbers. He has influenced our thinking and our language in more ways than we think. Here are some examples of his influence that you may not have realized. When you use the phrase, that's Greek to me, you're quoting Shakespeare. When you hear people say, it has vanished into thin air, they are quoting Shakespeare. If you ever say, I have refused to budge an inch, or she has a green-eyed jealousy, or he is tongue-tied, or she plays fast and loose, or I've been hoodwinked, or I'm in a pickle. You're quoting Shakespeare. You may not even know it. You're so cultured. (laughs) Same for the sayings, it's too much of a good thing. Laughed yourself into stitches without rhyme or reason. Sent me packing, or for goodness sakes, what the dickens. All of those are Shakespeare quotes. Somehow his thinking, his words, his descriptions of life have penetrated how we think and write and speak even today. But as much as Shakespeare has influenced us with great literature like Romeo and Juliet and Macbeth and Othello and King Lear, his writings are nothing compared to the Bible, which is all about a man named Jesus who has affected, who has influenced humankind's history and writing more than anyone else. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan wrote, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries Jesus has impacted the world so much that through the gospel, his story has been translated to 2,527 languages. Incredible. The second most translated book is Don Quixote, and that has been translated in only 60 languages. Maybe just as we have never thought about how Shakespeare has influenced our thinking, writing, and speech, we have never thought of the impact of Jesus in our everyday life. For example, every time we use a calendar in our kitchen or go on our laptop or on our watches or when we check a date, our timeline is based on none other than Jesus. We should know that A.D. are the initials of the Latin phrase Anno Domini, 
meaning the year of the Lord. B.C. stands for before Christ. His fame has surpassed all of the so-called famous people in his time. The great people in Jesus' day, like Caesar and Nero, were influential, yes, in the first and third centuries, but they're pretty much forgotten today, unless you like those names for pizza or dogs or casinos. On the other hand, Jesus and his followers' names live on, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and Priscilla. Many cities are named after Jesus' followers, like San Francisco for St. Francis, San Jose and Santa Maria for Joseph and Mary, Corpus Christi for the body of Christ, Sacramento for the sacrament of the Last Supper. Jesus has dominated our culture. There have been centuries of paintings and sculptures and mosaics and murals and music about Jesus and his followers. Jesus is everywhere. As John Ortberg Ortberg says in his book, Who is This Man? He writes, It is in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. Our golf course is a holy place sometimes when I hear the Lord's name. He writes, from christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. From the dark ages to postmodernity, he is the man who won't go away. Though Jesus never wrote a book, his movement started to give rise to libraries and then guilds of learning and eventually Oxford and Harvard and Yale and virtually the entire Western system of education and scholarship would arise because of his followers. Think of this. Even in death, Jesus' influence is there. The word cemetery is from the Greek word sleeping place, which pointed to the hope of resurrection. Look at most tombstones, and they will often have the date of birth, and then a a dash, and then the date of death, which indicates the person's length of life in relation to Jesus' lifetime. Did you ever think about that? For example, the person died in 2004, meaning 2,004 years after the birth of Christ. Jesus' impact has changed the morals of our world. His principles and a faith in him guided influential people like Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King Jr. and Nelson Mandela and William Wilberforce and gave us great literature through the likes of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Dickens and Madeleine Lengel. Hospitals and schools were built in his name. And some of the greatest and largest relief and social organizations started because of the influence of Jesus, like the Red Cross, or World Vision, or Compassion International, Agape International Missions, the YW and YMCA. It all boils down to the fact that the founders of these organizations, the authors that I've mentioned, the world leaders that I spoke of, all believe that Jesus the Nazarene, as we just sang, was actually God. That because the earth was messed up, God left heaven, touched down on this planet for 30 years, walked this earth to tell us how to live and to tell us to follow him and take care and how to take care of this issue of sin in our lives. 
So the Bible passage for us and the question for us all is how do we answer Jesus' question that soars over the centuries to you and me in this room at this time and place? And the question is, who do you say I am? So please stand now as I read today's scripture as we continue through the gospel of Mark, starting with Mark 8, verse 27, as I read. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, "Mm, some say John the Baptist, some others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. What about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. That's a big challenge right there. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite phrase for himself, will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory and with the holy angels. This is... The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Wow, you read this passage and go, oh my goodness, Dan, this is going to be tough. There are three killer questions today, and so you will see soon. I do mean literally killer questions. Who do you say Jesus is? Knowing that he was killed for your sake, will you follow him? And are you willing to die for him? Each question builds and builds to a crescendo of meaning. First, who do you say Jesus is? It's one of the most important questions we could ask ourselves. Is Jesus a lunatic who is just um, living in a demented reality? Or he is a liar who knows better, but he chooses to lie and says he's the Messiah? Or is he really the Lord? Lunatic, liar, or Lord? There really is not another choice. Few question whether he existed. So who is he? But you can't ignore the question because if he really is the Christ, if he really is the Messiah, the God who came to earth in human form, it would be like so profound, so revolutionary, so life-changing that we would be idiots not to respond His story is written in the Bible, the most important book in the history of the world. The secrets of life are there. And that's why I wish all our parents would bring our children to learn the Bible. If we could just take the time to know what it says. 
That's why I'm encouraging you all to be part of that Just Show Up Bible listening and reading group. We have spent much of our life not reading the entire Bible. So many secrets we don't know. And now is the time to finally read it. The Bible has the principles, or sometimes I call it the secrets if you don't read them, of how to live in a fruitful, flourishing manner. It will tell us why it's important to have an intimate friendship with God that will sustain us even in tremendous pain, as Kay Warren preached last week. The reason we have alpha and rooted groups is that they help us to explore what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus, who it turns out to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who suffered a humiliating death on a cross for you and me, for that was the only way to extinguish the spiritual sin that traps us. So we can learn more about Jesus through Just Show Up, Alpha Rooted, or any of our life training classes. So who do you say Jesus is? Don't wait years to answer that, for you don't know when your time's up. No one in history has ever affected us as much as Jesus. So let's figure out who he really is. Second question. Knowing that he was killed for your sake... Will you follow him? If you were to decide today that he really is the Messiah, would you follow him? Follow him. Now, as I said before, Satan believes Jesus is the Messiah, but belief is not enough. No one would say the devil is a Christian, right? Because even though he believes that Jesus exists, he doesn't follow him. So believing that Jesus exists is not enough. That doesn't make you a Christian. In our passage today, we see that Peter, above all the other disciples, he gets it. He answers the question correctly. Jesus asks him who, who he is, and Peter says, oh, you're the Messiah. Very good. He goes to the head of the class. But then we see that Peter doesn't really get it. He believes, but he doesn't fully get it. Incredibly, we read that Peter rebukes Jesus for not understanding Jesus' role. It's shocking. Peter rebukes Jesus for being incorrect. Check it out in our passage. Verse 31. Uh, Let's go to verse 32. I'm going to jump over. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, way. Jesus is teaching all the disciples, and then Peter takes Jesus aside and tells them that he's completely wrong. Unbelievable, crazy, the gall. Or to quote a run of Shakespeare quotes, by Jove, O Lord, tut tut, a blinking idiot, for goodness sakes. Peter's taking Jesus aside to rebuke him and not thinking correctly. Let's not miss the point. Peter didn't want Jesus to die, but he didn't get it that A, Peter is a sinner, and B, that Jesus has to die to pay the price for Peter's sin and all of ours. Now, here's part of a challenge question for us. Friends, there is actually a lot of Peter the Apostle in us. Do we at times tell Jesus he has it wrong? No, Jesus, I can sleep with anyone I want to outside of marriage. You're outdated, Jesus. I can take illegal drugs. I can eat or drink as much as I want. No, I don't have to have a heart for the poor. I'm a little busy. No, loving money is not bad because we need to live comfortably. And by the way, Jesus, I need to correct you. I'm not supposed to have pain in my life. Did you not get that message? You got that one wrong. 
We can actually think, Jesus, don't say I'm a sinner. All people are basically good, and so you didn't have to die for me because I'm a sinner since I'm fundamentally a good person. In fact, maybe there's a universalist streak in us all that says all roads lead to God, whether it's through Jesus or not. If that's the case, then Jesus' death on the cross is the most wasted, painful act in the world. What a waste. Do we think God did that just for the heck of it when it really didn't matter or it wasn't needed because all roads lead to God? He was just trying to give us another option on the buffet of life. Or when he said, I am the way and the truth, he didn't mean that. He just meant I'm a way, so do whatever. It's hard to admit that we are sinners, but if we're honest to ourselves, we should admit if you look at society, that humankind has selfishly, sinfully hurt the earth. There have been wars in almost every year of existence. There has been power struggles. There has been tremendous greed and narcissism and abuses of power in the business and political world. We normally look out for ourselves and not others. And when we look at human institutions that fall far from a moral high standard, we know there's something wrong with us. Whether it's the Pennsylvania Catholic Diocese or, take a hit on us, or recent stories of Protestant megachurch pastors, there has been major sexual abuse. And it's the Christians and the churches who are telling us to be more moral than others. They're the ones who are supposedly telling us what the high moral standard, hypocrisy. The Bible calls that eternal, terminal disease that plagues all institutions and individuals. It calls it sin. It misses the mark. We won't really appreciate and be passionate about Jesus until we come to grips with the fact that Jesus actually paid the price for our sin. And that was no small thing. How grateful are we really for that? Is it just like an intellectual thing or are we emotionally co- connected to that? Here's an example. Imagine a house sitter. Um, you have a house sitter while you're off on vacation or apartment sitter, whatever. And when you come back, your house sitter's friend says to you, hey, while you were gone, the postman came and said you needed to pay some delinquent postage, so I took care of that. I paid it for you. And you say, wow, that was really nice of you. Wow, five cents, thank you, that was great. But imagine, what if your house sitter friend said, hey, while you were gone, I noticed you were delinquent in paying your water bills for the last six months, so I paid for it. And you go, whoa, your gratitude is even more, right? What if you came back from holiday and your friend says, hey, I noticed you were late in paying your mortgage, so I took care of it. You don't need to pay me back. And actually, I took care of all the remaining balance. The debt is paid. And you would say, you did what? Man, you'd be stunned. You'd be so appreciative that you might actually fall at your house sitter's feet and worship him or her. Here's the moral of the story. If we are truly grateful in our hearts for what Jesus did for us, 
wouldn't we be that passionate in our faith? If we really understood that Jesus paid the debt for all of the sins we have done, are doing, and will do, and he paid for it by going through an excruciating, painful death on the cross, dying for us, we would be so thankful. Maybe we would fall at his feet and pray and sing and at the top of our lungs and worship him and do anything that he asked us to do. I would say the amount of gratitude and service and passion for Jesus is in direct proportion to our awareness and acceptance of his paying for our sin. Which leads to the final test. If we really think that Jesus is the Messiah and we are incredibly grateful for what he has done for us, then we would be willing to take up a cross and die for him. Back to our passage. Verse 34. Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? For what can you give in exchange for your soul? Final question. Are you willing to die for him? It's not a question we ask of ourselves often or our friends or in our small groups. That might be a nice kickoff question. Are we willing to give our life for Jesus? Wow, it's a big wake-up call. What is the cross he's asking us to bear? Among many things, the cross which we, some of us, which we display and wear around our necks, which I sometimes do, is not jewelry only, but actually should be a commitment to follow him and obey him unto death. Not just jewelry. It's not a macabre question. Are you willing to die for a cause? This is something to think about over lunch when you drive home or later tonight. Think on this. The reality is this. Terrorists are willing to die for their cause, but are we? Or do we think our faith is so that God will bless us with a nice swimming pool so we can sit around and eat Bubby's mochi ice cream and drink boba tea? Those who want to propagate evil and hatred are willing to die for their cause and they're working 24-7. So we have to take away any naiveness, naivete we have. Remember, September 11 was just a few days ago. 17 years ago, 19 terrorists were willing to die for the mission they believed in, thereby changing the world for evil. Are the people of good, the followers of Jesus, willing to have that same passion but to give up their lives for Jesus, for justice, and for good in his name? The enemy is willing to die for his cause. Are we soft Or are we dedicated unto death to die for the cause of Christ? Many in our armed services, armed forces, are willing to die for our country that you and others might have life. They sacrifice with with less pay and a, a pension plan that's not good until you work 20 years. I know they're trying to make changes on that. They have to up, uproot their families every few years, put them in new schools, find a new neighbor, new friends. 
They're willing that even if they're captured, they know they might be tortured, but they're willing to die for their country. Here in this town, in the nation, many first responders, police, firemen, emergency medical personnel put their lives on the line daily that others might be saved, and many in those professions died on 9-11. But are we Christians willing to die for the cause of Christ to save others? Are we willing to die daily that others might know Jesus and be saved for eternity, that they might know Jesus? Do we have a heart to save others through salvation, or is it all about us, and that's how we've constructed our faith? Way back in in January, in our annual congregational meeting, and uh, maybe a service after, I told you that we hope to have a satellite church campus in Kaka'ako next year. It's not only for more worship services. It's not only to be a base of operations to help the disenfranchised, the homeless, the poor, the hurting. All that's true. But it's also to be an opportunity in a fast-growing area in Oahu to lead people to Christ. We want them to be saved for eternity and know that their sins can be forgiven. It is for that reason that come November, we're going to have a capital appeal so we can have the finances to secure the site, which we hope to lease and remodel so we can create a missions and worship environment that would be welcoming to all the people God is going to be sending to us and then that we can care for and then later train and be sent out for him. The capital appeal for the satellite will mean another sacrifice for us, but it's for a very good cause. So there are basically two types of Christians. One type are those who want to use God to make themselves happy and blessed or comfortable or whatever. And these are the ones who have an agenda for their lives and they want God to bless their agenda about their family and their friends and make their agenda fulfilled. Very self-centered. They unconsciously make themselves the Lord and God has to run around and serve them as a holy butler. Their prayer life if you listen to them, is about 98% about them. The irony is that we keep trying to save our own lives and preserve it and only make life about ourselves, but Jesus says, guess what? You're going to lose your life. Then there's another kind of Christian, the second type, who is seriously willing to lose their lives for Christ, and thereby Jesus says they will save their lives every day. These are the followers of Christ who seek God's agenda for their lives and are willing to follow him even if it means death. They ask, God, what do you want me to do today rather than this is what I want to do, so make it happen, God. My friend Ed Morgan told me there's a cemetery in South Korea where the missionaries and their children who went there uh, spread the gospel. They're buried there. They died in their calling to bring Christ to that nation. Some were martyred. And now South Korea is a country of fervent Christians of prayer and action. Now, you may be thinking, am I saying we should all be martyrs? No. In fact, as wonderful that that some have given their lives for the cause of Christ, it is harder for you to stay in your jobs or your schools, your neighborhoods, and die daily for Christ, to daily put to death attitudes or addictions in your life to honor Christ, to daily forgive those who have hurt you, to daily seek God's agenda and pray for what he wants you to do rather than pray what you want God to do for you, 
to daily be faithful and enduring in your unconditional love, to love the unlovable, to love your fellow employees and their families, your bosses, and to think how to make this city a better place. To think daily of ways to introduce your friends or colleagues to Jesus. Picking up your cross is to daily not accept the world standards for living, which is very hard. They're bombarding us all the time, especially through the media. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German teacher and author, wrote this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It's that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I remember reading this book years ago, The Cost of Discipleship, and, and that quote always stuck with me. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him or her come and die. It's harder to be in the world and not of it than to retreat and be like an isolated monk in a cave who doesn't have to deal with the temptations and attacks of the world. And these are hard words for us all. We're required to give up our lives for Christ, all of our talents and time and treasure, even when they're suffering, as we heard last week with Kay Warren's talk. But we can say, but I thought following Jesus meant that I would never have pain. I'm sorry, picking up our cross means we follow Jesus, even if it means more pain and stress. Kay's husband, Rick Warren, once asked, do you know the most dangerous prayer you could pray? It's just two words, but be very careful if you pray those two words, and they are, use me. At that moment, there's going to be a target on your back, and the evil one will know you are dangerous because you are passionate to do whatever Jesus asks, even unto death. Are we up for it to be all in and sacrifice? There will be people in this world who don't want the Lord's justice or his mercy and grace to those who are poor or strangers or widowed or in prison. There will be people who will say you're crazy. There will be people who try to stop you from doing good and you might grow weary in doing good and at some point you might think this Jesus, you know, is kind of embarrassing to follow him. It's scandalous to follow him who asks of my time, talent, and treasure to go all in for him. Am I being asked to be this, like this goody two-shoes, always fighting for justice, always being kind to the unlovable, being generous with my money, to say to my friends that I love Jesus with all my heart? That's embarrassing. That's shameful. But then we can remember the last part of the passage. Jesus said, if any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. Ah, oh, tough passage. Dan, do you have to preach every verse as we go through the Gospel of Mark? Yeah, I do. But if we live 
If we in how we live are ashamed to be an authentic, genuine follower of Jesus, then Jesus will be ashamed of us when he returns. His words, not mine. So this is a big heads up today. Now we can go from this and feel guilty, like, oh man, which, uh, but I don't think this is Jesus' intent, not to make us guilty. Rather, we can hear this and see it as a challenge and say, okay, I'm in. The way I'm going to play in the game of life, I'm going to go all out, and I don't want the coach to be ashamed of my lazy, apathetic play. I'm going to be all in. And I'm not going to perform because the faith is all about guilty performance. No, I know it's all about the heart. If my heart is all in, it's not about perfection of performance. It's because I have realized that I want to have a close, intimate friendship with Jesus. And out of a friendship, I'm going to do anything, even give up my life for my best friend. For in the long run, all of us will save our lives by losing it for Jesus. But may we be able to say at the end of our life, like the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And that Jesus might say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes your words are pretty hard-hitting, but because we know you love us so much, you're saying it for our own good, and you're talking to us about the reality of of the universe. And so, Lord, as we hear this song that Cynthia will now sing for us, may the words of this song penetrate our souls And maybe her words would actually be our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. For many of us, maybe it's like, as the old bard has said, to be or not to be, that is the question. Am I going to be all in? And um, some of you may say, gee, I want to pray about that with someone And just know that our prayer team will be here in front of the cross or in front of the choir risers. And if something has stirred in your hearts that you really want to pray with someone, maybe it's about the message. Maybe you have an illness or some other emotional or spiritual issue. But please take advantage of of the prayer team. And uh, God may be calling you to, to pray and make some decisions. But for all of you, I have a blessing, so please stand. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and his countenance be upon you. And may you know deep in your heart the wonderful love and grace and mercy of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, where God would die for your sake. May you be encouraged to do what you know you need to do and know that the Lord is with you. In Christ's name, amen. Going all in for Jesus is the best investment you can make, and it pays in dividends long after your commitment is made. 
If you'd like to hear this sermon again, you can listen to and download this and other sermons from the First Pres website, fpchawaii.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Join us at one of our worship services on campus at 45550 Keona Ole Road, Kaneohe, Hawaii, 96744. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 930, and 1111. Follow First Prez on Twitter and Facebook. Download the brand new First Prez app. Watch First Prez sermon videos on our website and on Facebook. And if you need more, you can call us at 808-532-1111. For Pastor Dan Chun and the entire staff at First Prez, I'm Michael Shishido. Until next time, God bless you and thanks for listening. Strength for the Journey is copyright 2018 and produced by the Media Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Honolulu at Ko'olau.